The one who wrote the words to that hymn we've just sung, John Newton, was a man who knew the meaning of grace in his life. And if you don't understand what that means, I invite you to be here three weeks from tonight when we will do the life story of John Newton as a part of our evening service. This is an original drama written by Patty Thompson in our church, our own choir and other musicians will be participating in an evening of the life and the music of John Newton. I hope you'll plan to be here on the evening of May the 20th. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to be cautious in what I say today because the subject that is before us is wildly exaggerated by some while frequently ridiculed by others. Today I want to talk about the reality of the invisible spiritual dimension. I invite you to open your Bible with me to Daniel chapter 10. It is important for us to read the text today. I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read, beginning with verse 1 of Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat nor wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphus. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. <clears throat> now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. When he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with uh, the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. 
And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me, and he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. <clears throat> we human beings live and operate in a material dimension. Our senses are designed by the Creator to relate to a physical environment and reality. But we live in a world within a world, in a material world surrounded by a spiritual one, one of which most people, in our culture at least, are uninformed. This is not necessarily true of lesser developed cultures, nor has it always been true of our own culture. But the further our culture has strayed from the knowledge of God, the more ignorant it has become of spiritual matters. So blind and unknowing, in fact, that for several decades, Western culture has sought its sustenance, not from God, but from the empty, dry wells of secularism and humanism. Yet one cannot help but note a rapid change which is in progress in our culture. There is on many fronts, a new openness to things spiritual. There is a movement away from the rational and the scientific to the mysterious and the supernatural. Indeed, I would suggest that there has been a new packaging of the occult, the occult, to make it palatable to the seared taste buds of the Western culture. There is a new movement in our land toward a new age. And the new age is actually an experimentation with occult powers and practices. I say it's been repackaged, for it has been packaged for children in cartoons, games, and toys that are available widely. It has also been packaged for adults in seminars, in movies, and in group games like Dungeons and Dragons. I'm not talking about overt Satanism. That's another matter. But I'm talking about a clever marketing plan of the occult, which has been put together by the devious and wicked mind of Satan. 
Daniel chapter 10 pulls back the curtain to allow us a glimpse into the spiritual realm. In this chapter, we observe the reality of things spiritual and invisible. Notice with me first the background very briefly. Daniel is living now under the rule of the Persians. The year is about 536 B.C. It is, he says, the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And what this means is that Daniel had not returned to Palestine with other Jews who had been released from their captivity to return to Jerusalem. He had prayed for that return, and we studied his prayer in the ninth chapter of this book. But it was not God's will for Daniel himself to go back to Jerusalem. Was Daniel disappointed by this? Was he disappointed that he didn't get to personally participate in the return to his homeland that he had not seen since he was a teenager? And remember, now he's in his mid-80s. Well, we don't really know whether he was disappointed. There may have been some human factors involved. He had a very high position in government and may not have been free to return because of those responsibilities to the king. In addition, he was a man of advanced age and may not have been able to travel that distance. At this particular time, which was the 24th day of the first month, he says, he was away from the capital city of Babylon, perhaps as many as 30 or 40 miles, which is the closest point to the river Tigris. Now he was there in that place, apparently, on some kind of a spiritual retreat. And he tells us that for three weeks, He had repented before God and had fasted and mourned. What was on Daniel's mind? Well, we can only guess. But because of some of the language that he uses in chapter 7 and again in chapter 9, it seems likely that Daniel was still perplexed by some of the things that had been revealed to him in the last couple of years by God. He could not put together all the pieces regarding the future of his people, the Jewish people. And so for this period of time, he ate none of the fine, delicate foods that were available to him, nor did he have the ordinary food of wine and meat. He did not, as was the custom, anoint himself with oil every day, which was a practice uh, in part to prevent burn from the sun. But rather he gave himself to a very austere life, as he fasted for these three weeks. And that brings us to the event that took place. It says in verse 1 that Daniel received a message, which is a way to say that he received a revelation from God. He calls it true, despite the fact that it was hard for him to grasp. He says it was of great conflict. Literally, the word conflict means army or host, or the warfare that comes from an army. And so what this phrase suggests is that this message, this true message that God gave to Daniel, involved a future for his people that included a great deal of warfare and conflict. It seems that this revelation that was given to him 
and which takes up chapters 11 and 12, the rest of the book, is the key revelation in the whole book. For here we find that piece that fits into the puzzle that seems to put it in place for Daniel as much as he was going to get it all together. Daniel was yet searching for that that missing piece that would help him have understanding of the earlier visions that left him puzzled. And uh, now God gives it to him. There's a lesson here for you and me. There are times when we do not understand what God is doing or what the Word of God means. What we ought to do in cases like that is to give ourselves to intense prayer and study. For in God's time, He will cause the pieces to fall into place. The message was delivered to Daniel by a supernatural being. Now this is not unique in the Bible. Abraham, Moses, Gideon, the Virgin Mary, Joseph, Paul, John, they all had supernatural messages given to them. So this is not unique, what happened to Daniel, but it certainly was not the norm either. His eyes beheld a person who, in appearance, looked like a man. He was visible to the eyes of Daniel, and his words were audible to Daniel's ears. But though he had the appearance of a man, it's obvious that he is more than a man. In the sixth verse, he is described as having a body that had a golden cast to it. It was of beryl, a golden color. And as Daniel looked at his face, his face had the brilliance of lightning about it. And he was attracted by his eyes, which are said to have been like flaming torches. Now try to put all that together in your own mind. A man with a bronze-colored, golden-colored body, dressed in linen, with a gold belt, a pure gold belt, but his face was of the brilliance of a flash of lightning, and his eyes were like leaping flames in that face. So this is more than a mere human. Because of the description, some say it may have been Christ. There is a similarity of the description here to what he looks like in Revelation chapter 1 when he appears to John in the Isle of Patmos. I don't believe that, though, that it was Christ. For one reason, this angel received help from Michael. And it's difficult to imagine our Lord needing assistance from an angel. What we have here, I believe, is an angelic creature who is made visible to Daniel. Notice that he is unseen by the other bystanders. Daniel was with others at this point. And yet the very presence of this being produced terror in them, so much so that they ran away. And Daniel was left there alone. And notice his response to this event. He is left with fear. Several times the angel said, now don't be afraid, be courageous. Easy for him to say. Daniel's left with weakness. He fainted. He is unable to speak. He is speechless. He experiences physical anguish, a word that means literally to twist or to writhe. It refers to his insides, which were completely twisted because of the emotional distress of the event that was taking place, and he was completely without breath, according to verse 17. 
graciously, this angel touched Daniel three different times. The first time was to raise him up, at least up onto his hands and knees. He had fainted right on his face. And then the angel touched him again to give him the ability to speak. And thirdly, the angel touched him to give him strength so that he might be able to communicate and receive what the angel came to tell him. Now, having looked at the background and the event itself, let's take a look at some of the insight that we grasp in the 10th chapter of Daniel. <clears throat> There's a tremendous amount of insight here regarding prayer. I invite you to be back tonight as we talk about this theme, what happens when a believer prays. We're going to observe what happens in Daniel chapter 10 with regards to prayer. There's a whole other line of insight here regarding angelic warfare, and that I want us to look at for a few minutes. It is clear from what is said that there are opposing forces <clears throat> within the spirit realm. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> These forces are divided between good and evil. It is also clear that each side is organized. There are degrees of authority and strength in order to do battle against the opposing side. You will notice that the words prince or chief prince are used. Verse 13 and again in verse 20, <clears throat> verse 21. These are positions of authority that are granted to specific creatures or angels. Now these words are used uh, both of the side of evil and of the side of good. For Michael is called here one of the chief princes. But the word prince is also used of demons as he talks about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. You see, these are not human beings that are being spoken about, but these are angels, fallen angels. On the one side, we have this angel that has appeared to Daniel and which is not named, although some suggest it might be Gabriel, since he's been involved other places in the scriptures making announcements. And along with this angel is one who's named Michael. The name Michael means who is like the Lord or who is like God. He is mentioned three times in the book of Daniel, twice in this chapter, again in chapter 12. He is mentioned in Jude verse 9 where it is said that he battled with Satan over the body of Moses, rather mysterious text, but after Moses died there was a struggle for the possession of his, his corpse. And that battle was in the spirit realm between Satan, who desired it for some reason, and uh, Michael. And then we're going to look at a passage in Revelation chapter 12, where again Michael is mentioned specifically. He is uh, said to be the chief prince, and he is the one who is the prince of Daniel's people. And so we understand 
from this that Michael, the archangel or the chief prince, <clears throat> is the one who is the preeminent one in the spirit realm for the protection of Israel, the Jewish people. Now what we see illustrated here in this glimpse into the spirit realm is nothing more than what Paul says in outline form in Hebrew, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 where he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world against wicked spirits in the heavenly realm that is in the spirit realm. Now he seems to outline there something of a hierarchy of evil. That there are extremely powerful beings, there are lesser beings, and lesser and lesser, and of course the further down the rank should go, probably the more numerous these evil beings become. And so what Daniel illustrates for us and what he records is the fact that there are two opposing sides in the spirit realm and that these realms are indeed highly organized. And we would also observe that assignments seem to be given to these angels on both sides as it would relate to empires or to powers or to regions. We've already pointed out Persia being mentioned. Greece is mentioned. And so angels of good of God and angels of Satan and evil are likewise assigned to try to influence the course of events in regions or in empires of the world. They are assigned to try to influence things toward the will of God, God's purpose, or to try to influence things toward Satan's goal. You say, does he have one? Yes. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul writes about the course of this age, according to which we all at one time walked. A strong suggestion that Satan has a course outline where he'd like to take the age, human history. And we know exactly where that is. It's to the worship of himself in the person of Antichrist. That's where he wants to head things in human history. <clears throat> the course is chartered, and his demons are organized in the world to try to influence events to bring that to pass. Now, we also learn here that angels can assist each other. I've already said to you that Michael is the one who seems to be assigned to Israel. Now notice in verse 13 that the angel speaking to Daniel says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. So here we have this evil prince, this demon, who is in some sense opposing Daniel, or opposing the angel talking to Daniel. And notice how long he had opposed. It's the same period of time that Daniel had prayed. From the very first day that Daniel had asked of God, the answer was sent. But the answer didn't come through immediately because there was a hindrance to that answer. The prince of the kingdom of Persia did not want this angel from God to come through to Daniel. Why? 
Because Daniel was going to be given information relating to the Jewish people. And above all the peoples of the world, the demons hate the Jews. And at this particular time, of course, the, the nation of Israel was in the spotlight of God's purpose and plan in the world. And he did not want any information coming through to encourage the Jewish people or to encourage Daniel or to give any light as to their future. And so for 21 days, he successfully withstood this angel sent from God. But the angel says, Then, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And so Michael, who was responsible for the Jews, came to assist this angel so that he might be able to get through the resistance and get to Daniel and bring the message to him. And then the language suggests here that that angel Michael left and the messenger to Daniel then <clears throat> was left alone. They had defeated the, and the prince of Persia, at least for this moment. And that angel had gotten through that he might speak to Daniel. Now in chapter 11, verse 1, we have another example of help. The angel refers to something that had happened two or three years before. He says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him, for Michael. So you see, there seems to have been a mutual assistance pact, if you please. Now it's interesting to think back what had happened two or three years before this. And what was Michael trying to do? What was he trying to influence to happen? Remember, he is responsible for the Jewish people. And two or three years before this, Darius and his superior, Cyrus, were trying to decide what to do with the Jews, whether to allow them to return to their land. Now that's what was going on in the political, physical, natural realm. But behind the scenes, in the supernatural realm, there was also a battle going on because Michael was trying to exert influence spiritually on Darius and Cyrus to let him to cause him to let the Jews go. And the implication is that demons on the other side, the prince of Persia and his associates, were seeking to influence Cyrus and Darius to make the other decision, keep them in captivity. And this angel, who was now talking to Daniel at that time, had come to assist Michael in his warfare. And they were successful, of course, because Cyrus and Darius agreed that the Jews could go back to Palestine. And so we see that demons, as well as angels, are assigned to powers and to leaders, and that they are able to assist one another in the warfare that takes place. Now, as we think about what was happening then with the Jewish people, <clears throat> one can only imagine what was taking place 42 years ago when the Jews declared Palestine as their homeland and declared an independent state in the midst of all of the Arab countries. You can only imagine the warfare that must have been going on behind the scenes in the White House in Washington. 
as arguments were presented to President Truman to recognize Israel or not to recognize Israel. And history records that his decision to recognize Israel as an independent state was the crucial decision that caused Israel to become a reality in the Mideast. I would suggest to you, there's no way of knowing this, but I would suggest to you that Michael the Archangel was likely in Washington in May of 1948. And that he was there to exert influence on President Truman to make the decision that he did. And who knows who else was assigned there with him on both sides. God's purpose, of course, was ultimately done. Now this angel had gotten through this time, but notice in verse 20 he says, I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. And so the war is not over. They had gotten a victory. He had come through. His message was now going to be delivered to Daniel, but he says, I'm going back to fight. I'm going back to fight once more against this prince of Persia. Because the battle is still being fought. And he says, at the end of the verse, I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. That's an interesting thought. Because Greece was not a world power at this point. But he says the prince of Greece, again a demon, who was responsible for the nurturing of the Greek empire and bringing forth its influence, and Alexander the Great and all of that, that prince was about to come. Now, in human time, it was yet to be 200 years. But we're not sure how human time, earth time, relates to the spirit realm. Because the angel says in the spirit realm that that being was about to come. Although, in, as the earth calendar was calculated it was yet to be 200 years. And so we have a great deal of information given to us in this chapter regarding the reality of invisible things. And here we see some insights regarding spiritual warfare, a subject that we need to be aware of and alert to. Now there are also some tremendous insights given to us in the angel's message regarding the future, the end times. That's in chapters 11 and 12, and we will get to that eventually. I might say to you that I would encourage you to read those two chapters in advance, perhaps even several times, because they are a little bit complex. In closing today, I want to give you two or three thoughts. <clears throat> in the first place, a world of activity is continuously taking place in the invisible realm around us. And what happens in that invisible realm affects human history. There is a great cosmic battle of good against evil. And what happens, the successes or the defeats in that realm affect what happens in your life and in mine. Although Satan may make temporary gains and at times even achieve some alarming victories, we know that he cannot ultimately succeed, for Christ Jesus must and will reign. The Lord God Omnipotent reigns. 
but within the boundaries that God has established in his universe, there is a battle that goes on continuously between good and evil. And so when we read the decisions of President Gorbachev to loosen his hold on Eastern Europe, or on the other hand, to crack down on Lithuania. We know that those are not merely decisions he's making in his own mind, but he is being influenced by what's happening behind the scenes in the invisible world. When the Supreme Court of the United States makes a decision, as it did in 1973 in the Roe v. Wade decision, it's not merely seven somewhat brilliant men making a decision, but pressure is being exerted upon them one way or the other by the forces of good and evil. In that case, the evil side won. <clears throat> and when our legislature or our Congress or our president are considering this law or that, once again, the powers on both sides assigned to our nation and to our leaders are in warfare over those decisions, seeking to exert influence either toward what God purposes over what Satan has charted out for his course. We must be aware of what is happening around us in that realm. <clears throat> now, we cannot know, of course, the specifics of that. But we can realize that there is that reality the second observation that I want to make, and I want to press this point home briefly but firmly, and that is that all anti-Semitism is demonic in its origin. All anti-Semitism is demonic in its origin. That is not to say that every person who is anti-Semitic is demon-possessed, but that spirit is demonic in its origin. And it comes directly from Satan, who hates the Jew above every race of people in the world. And so for one to hate the Jew is to align himself with Satan in his age-old hatred of that people. Anti-Semitism will be present in the world as long as Satan is free. <clears throat> It will not be destroyed until the return of Jesus Christ. And those of us who are God's people in the church need to be aware of what anti-Semitism is all about. And when it raises its ugly head, we need to step up and join forces on the earthly realm with Michael in the spiritual realm and defend the Jewish people. Now, having said that, I want to emphasize that not everything that the nation of Israel does is therefore justified. I'm not saying that we ought to be pro-Zionist. Zionism is a political movement. But I'm saying we ought to be concerned about the welfare of the Jewish people. For they are God's people, God's earthly people, and God still has a purpose for them. I want to close by just talking briefly about how we as Christians relate to what we've talked about this morning. 
For you and I must understand that we are at a critical point in the battle that's taking place and raging around God's kingdom. Spiritual warfare is behind the advances or the defeats that are made in God's kingdom. We must realize that we are a part of the total battle. I would suggest three things with regard to the invisible realm of the spirits to those of us who are Christians. Number one, be cautious. Be cautious when it comes to investigating this realm too much. It can become dangerous. Do not play with the occult at all. Do not experiment with the powers of darkness. They are very real. group of our young people in a church that I was a youth pastor in, in uh, the state of Washington, were having uh, a slumber party. I guess those are called sleepovers these days. And one of the girls brought an Ouija board to the party. They thought it would be fun to play with this thing. And as they began to play with it, it began to give them answers that no one could have known. And they got a little scared of it. And so, one of the girls began to speak to the Ouija board about the blood of Jesus Christ. And when the blood of Christ was mentioned, the marker on the Ouija board flew off the board and hit the wall. Some games may seem to be innocent, but they are not so. And of course, the great open door to the world of the occult today is drug abuse. Be cautious when it comes to the realm of the invisible. But on the other hand, be cognizant. In in, in events that take place around us, be alert to the struggle behind the scene. When you read your newspaper... And the events that take place, the decisions that are made, the legislation that is passed, look beyond that to see if you might be able to grasp any of this cosmic conflict taking place. We can't always know the meaning or what's taking place there, but we know that it's happening. Be cognizant of that. And number three, be courageous. As a good soldier and warrior of Jesus Christ, Learn to use your spiritual weapons, especially prayer, when it comes to this battle. Understand that God has given you an armor that is described in Ephesians chapter 6. And that he has given you a resource in prayer. Understand that God desires for you and for me to learn how to pray so that we can assist in the battles in the spirit realm. Now, as I said, there's, there's some extremism in this area these days. 
But I think there's only extremism because there is some legitimacy there. That by our prayers, we impact the spirit realm. Paul Bilheimer has written a book called Destined for the Throne. Let me just read a couple of sentences from his book. He says, The prayer closet is the arena which produces the overcomer. The world is the laboratory in which those destined for the throne, that's believers, are learning in actual practice how to overcome Satan and his hierarchy. This means that redeemed humanity outranks all other orders of created beings in the universe. The church, through her resurrection and ascension with Christ, is already legally on the throne. Through his use of her weapons of prayer and faith, she holds in this present throbbing moment the balance of power in world affairs. Have you ever thought about that? That by your prayers, you can affect the balance of power in the affairs of human history. So be courageous and learn how to pray. And there are books available to you regarding that. Let the Spirit of God teach you. Just go to the book, the Bible, and learn to pray. I read recently about one Minneapolis church where I think that there is some extremism when it comes to this matter. Where every problem and every disease and every situation is attributed to a demon. Now I would not agree with that kind of extremism. And I think that kind of teaching is a problem. But I'll tell you what the bigger problem is. The bigger problem are the Christians who are naive about spiritual realities. And that's why this morning I wanted to take time to talk about the reality of invisible things. That we might not be naive, but informed, and learn how to be effective for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that what has been said this morning might be graciously used of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would equip us, each of us, who names the name of Christ, to be a spiritual warrior. Thank you for the victory that you have already provided in your Son, the Lord Jesus. May we stand on that ground of victory and learn to wage the good fight of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.